I, good evening, everyone. Hello. Welcome, Parsha in my life class, Parsha's Vayishlach. Um, anybody that would like to sponsor this shear, it's available for yours um, to grab. It used to be that I used to look for sponsors. I used to have a whole list of people that I called. Now I decided that whoever wants to sponsor has to come running after us. That's the story. Because <laughs> um, it's a big merit. So if you want the merit, you can't be chased with a merit. You've got to come run for the merit. If you want a merit, it's yours, but you got to, you know, it's up to you. That's the story. <coughs> um, in any case, why is the shirt bothering me now? Okay, I think I'm good. In any case, all right, so this week is exciting, Parsha. So there's two things. First of all, we have the Parsha, and we're going to connect it this week to the awesome time that we're in, which is the month of Kislev, and we are between two big holidays on the Chabad calendar, on the, on the Hasidic calendar. One was yesterday, the Yud, Yud Kislev, which was the day of the liberation of the second Chabad Rebbe. And um, then the 19th of Kislev is coming up on two, next week, Tuesday, Monday night. Um, which we are celebrating the liberation of the first Chabad Rebbe, known as the Alter Rebbe, of Liadi, from his, his incarceration for his, um, uh, he was accused of, you know, trying to create some new religion or various different accusations and um, overthrowing the Russian uh, czar, the government threatening, wanting to create his own kingdom and all these kind of weird stuff. But really, we know the real story was that the forces of darkness were trying to stop his teachings from flowing to the world. And uh, on the 19th of Kislev, uh, the green light was given in heaven. An endorsement was given by God Almighty himself and by the entire heavenly um, um, court um, in which they certified that these teachings are ready to be released to the world. The gems of the gems, the highest of the high, the deepest of the deep. And that's life. There's no greater holiday than the, than the holiday of being given life, given the deepest life. For us who are on this channel and, and get to enjoy these very deep teachings and inspirational thoughts and, and life-changing ideas, altering ideas, this is our holiday. This is the day in which, and we refer to the day as Rosh Hashanah. Um, it is a... Rosh Hashanah, it is the beginning of the new year for the deepest, essential, core essential, esoteric teachings of the Torah. Now, even, although it's happening next week, it is blessed from this Shabbos, as we know that the Shabbos blesses the entire week. So the Shabbos is the culmination of the week, but Shabbos is also the forebear and the empowerment of the following week. So this Shabbos, Parshas Vayishlach, which we read the Torah portion of Yishlach, is going to give the oomph and the energy and the power to following week to the great holiday of the 19th of Kislev. So what I would like to do is find a deep, a something in the Parsha, which will open up the gates for us to appreciate how awesome the 19th of Kislev is. And how, so we can get ready ourselves, so by the time that day comes, we will really be ready to be open and really absorb this incredible godly light. Um, everybody that wants to come to Maya, and we're having an awesome concert here. It's more than a concert. It's, it's, it's a blending of souls. Everybody can join. It's called the Neshama Fest. 
um, you get your tickets. I'll post it on the on the Mayan website. Maybe it's posted already. I'm not sure. It'll be posted where you can get those tickets. I'll also, you know what I'll do? I'll add it as a link to this YouTube a video on the bottom after we, after this is posted. So you can go to, it's not Ticketmaster, some kind of ticket, something, I think it's called Ticket Leap or something, and get your uh, ticket to this. It's going to be a packed house and a sold-out event. So everybody should, um, it's going to be a very meaningful evening here. So it's next week, Monday night. So that's going to be next week. We won't have a Monday night class. Be aware of that. Okay, so this has to serve. It's double inspiration for two weeks. Next week is beyond inspiration. Okay. So uh, let's open up the Torah portion to this week. And we read a fascinating story. The story is of the great battle. You know, Yaakov, Jacob, which is last week we learned how we got the angels they came to greet him, took him back, escorted him back to Israel. And now he's ready, readying for his confrontation with his brother, Esau, who last we heard of him was dead bent on murdering his brother because he had such anger at him for, for robbing him of what he, which he felt was his blessings, blessings of Isaac, of Yitzchak, and for cheating him from the firstborn. That's what he felt. Um, as a result of that, he wanted to kill his brother. Yaakov ran away for 20 years. He was hiding. Um, during that time, he built himself a huge a family, a huge estate, and now he's coming back. Very successful person, but with enormous fear of what his brother might do to him. Um, so Yaakov sends messengers. The Torah portion opens up with Yaakov sending messengers to his brother. He actually sent them angels, very angels that he met then. He dispatched his brother. And um, but the angels come back and tell him that Esau is not impressed and he's not being appeased. He is as angry as he always was, and he's coming with 400 men. That means he's coming with a massive military and he's out for bloodshed. And Yaakov at that moment was terrified and he prepares for battle. He prays and he also f- puts aside a huge gift as a as a form of bribery. Um, okay, he's. Now, the interesting thing is, so this, the Torah relates, after he sends off the gift, and he he's moving closer towards Israel, in other words, as Esau, is, Esau Yaakov doesn't run away, he's going, he's free, he knows God told him to go, so he's going back to Israel, so he continues on his journey, so the sages say that he stayed, not the sages, the verse says that he stayed, he stayed over one more night in the camp, in the middle of the night he rose, and in the dark, I, I don't know why, I guess he was doing it in the cover of night, he moves his family across the river. There's a ford over there called the Yabok Ford, and Yaakov is helping his family cross over, his children, his wives, his servants, his maidservants, his cattle. He's, he's, he's helping every, everybody cross the river. After everybody's on the other side of the river safely, the verse describes how Yaakov turns back. And, uh, and so we picture this, it's the middle of the night, it's really dark. He's crossing over. I don't know what kind of light he had, if he had any. He's crossing over this this river crossing, and he returns to the other side. And the verse says that Yaakov remains alone. And at that moment, when he's alone, he suddenly encounters a mysterious being. The person is in a the, the being is in a form of a human being, <clears throat> and uh, the guy is not friendly to him. Not only that, but the person 
you know, picks a fight. And before you know it, Yaakov is engaged with in a wrestling uh, match with this individual. Doesn't exactly describe the duration of the fight, but it went on till the morning. Could have been a couple of hours. It was a very frightening uh, time. And Yaakov exhibited enormous strength because lo and behold, this individual was not human. Imagine that. So Yaakov is fighting with a with a angelic being, and according to most of the interpretation, this angelic being was the angel of Esau, of his brother Esau. What I noticed today was I never really picked this up. It's so funny how you can learn Chumash for so many years and you don't like put together certain things. So you know, I always read the story, I always knew the story, but it never crossed my mind that this is a you realize Yaakov sent angels angels to his brother Esau. So Esau says, you have angels, I have my angel too. Esau sent them back an angel too. Whether Esau was conscious of it or not, but the fact that Yaakov encountered Esau's angel was exactly measure for measure for what he was doing to his brother. Now Yaakov doesn't have bad intentions. He's sending the angels in order to, you know, to help him facilitate his relationship with his brother. But the fact that Yaakov sends him angels brings about that now he's left alone and, a, and an angel of Asaph comes to fight him. The thought I had today, which was interesting, which I have to still develop, this is not what I'm talking about tonight, is just that there always has to be a balance in a person's life between the structure of good and holy and unholy. If you, if you bring into your, into your life enormous spiritual powers, if you increase the power of holy, there will always be the, an adversary to match. So if you gain more insight, recognize that it doesn't mean that your evil inclination is going to disappear immediately. Actually, it's going to run to the gym and it's going to exercise a little bit and come back much stronger than it ever was before. So fight you because life has to be a battle. It's just that now that you're more empowered, you can fight a stronger adversary. And it's the way it is. The sages say whoever is greater than his fellow has a greater evil inclination. So basically when Yaakov elicits the help of angels in his in his encounter with Asa, guess what? He gets the angels on the other side come come to match him. But because he's a holy and godly person connected to God, he prevails over the angel. I guess the point of the fight, what it seems like, was the point point of the fact was that the angel wanted to throw him down on the floor. That's basically what it was. It was like kind of a wrestling. And the one that would like, you know, cause the other to fall, that would be the winner, the declared winner. So that's what it seems like with the angel is because the Torah is describing they were locked in a, in a wrestling and each one was trying to not take the other one down. When the angel sees that time is running up, you know, like when they have these 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 um, matches, whether it's boxing or, or UF, whatever they call it, UFOs or whatever, not UFOs, whatever they call it, uh, UF, uh, MMA, whatever these, 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 these matches of fighters. So you have a certain, you know, they're in the in the in the wrestling ring for like a couple of minutes, and then you have the the bell or whatever the guy stops them because it times up, you know. So that when the angel sees that he's running out of time and he can't defeat Yako, so he 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 decides to injure him. In other words, I, I guess so. Why couldn't he injure him earlier? It seems like the point wasn't the injury. The point was to dominate him by throw him on the ground. When he saw he couldn't throw him on the ground, he injured him on the on his thigh, on the top of his thigh, in his sciatic nerve. 
Yaakov sustains an injury, but in the end, Yaakov wins because the angel then saw that he couldn't defeat him, and now he's begging to leave, and Yaakov has him. I don't know if Yaakov had him in a headlock or whatever it was, but Yaakov had the angel strongly in his hands, and he didn't let him leave. The angel is begging to be released because angels can't show up late. It doesn't work that way. If you're an angel, you've got to show up on time. But you can't say, I'm human or whatever. You know, and angels are... And when Yaakov was holding the angel down and he didn't let him go back, it was devastating to the angel. So he um, he begs Yaakov, and Yaakov says, I will not let go of you until you bless me, until you concede, because by that time Yaakov knows that it's a... As they have to understand, obviously, from the story that the main battle over here was the physical battle. It was a physical battle, but the physical battle was a reflection of a of an unbelievable spiritual war that was going on between, between the forces of holiness and the forces of darkness. And um, Yaakov now asks the angel that he must concede to him the firstborn and he must concede the blessings. And the angel was trying to delay, but in the end, he concedes the blessings and the and and basically he hands Yaakov the win. He surrenders. He's subdued, and he says and he, and he does it by telling Yaakov that he'll have a name change. And from the name Yaakov, he will become Yisrael. Yaakov means can have a connotation of cunningness, coming crooked, because that's what Esav was always saying. My brother crooked me. And now he said the name Yisrael is the name Yashar. Yashar means straight. That means it's straight, it's correct, it's right. I admit that the blessings are yours morally and ethically. It's not stolen, it's not crooked anymore. So what I perceived as an injustice, I've now underst- I now understand that it's not because it's only right that you should, you should have those blessings. That's the story. Um, on the words... So it's a fascinating event. If you can just stop, pause, and just watch this and this nighttime. Like, what was this family thinking? Where was he? Where they didn't check? They heard noise. It was a silent battle. What's going on? It must have been terrifying. You think about fighting with this angel. Esau is the is the strongest power in the world. You're talking about Rome and all the forces of evil that were like later manifested in all the generations all wrapped up in this powerful being. But the story of Yaakov prevailing is that Jews might be injured in our long history. It's obviously everything in the Torah is a is a model for what was going to happen later. Jews in our course of history might will go through difficult challenges and difficulties and at certain times even sustain injury. But in the end we are left standing. No one can take the Jew down. All the old anti-Semites and the older, older, ancient anti-Semites and the brand new anti-Semites like we discussed last week. It's a futile attempt because the Jew will remain standing and he will prevail and he will usher in a world of light and godly consciousness and holiness and goodness and laughter for the entire world forever and ever. That's just going to be the end story. That's the story. And And whoever is all the adversaries of the Jewish people will concede and bend their heads towards Israel at the end. That's the reality. Now on the words, which which the opening of this whole story, the narration, is that Yaakov goes back 
And it says, Vayavaser Yaakov Levado. Yaakov remains alone. So there is the Midrash says, what is this meaning of he was alone? So there are two comments which seem to be as far from each other as possible. And what we are going to do is reconcile it with a very deep teaching. According to the Gemara, the tractate Talmud and Masechtas Chulin, somewhere in the Daf Tzadiks, here we are, Chulin, yeah, Tzadik Aleph, Rashi also quotes this, this teaching. Yaakov being alone, was be, why wasn't no one with him? Because he went, he only returned because he remembered that he forgot something. What did he forget? He forgot small little jugs. I mean, it was earthenware, a couple of, a couple of jugs, drinking jugs or whatever. And uh, because it was part of his property. That means you have to understand he's going over with everybody, with the servants. So probably the moving company he has his whole he has a whole team over there ready to move. So they move this stuff over. So you would imagine that the last people would take everything. It was because he forgot something. There was some earthenware, small little. It's like you know when you have your whole car packed to go on a family trip, and then you remember one little thing. You know you forgot your slippers or something. So you go running back in. Every all the kids are waiting in the car already, and you go running back in to grab the last pair of socks or whatever that has been forgotten in the, in, the, in, the, in the laundry or whatever, in the dryer. So that was a kind of a thing. Yaakov goes running back to pick up these little jugs. And the, that's the meaning that Yaakov was alone. And so that was the content of, of him being, of his return, being on the other side of the thing. And Rashi also comments, I mean, come on. It's a time of danger. It's nighttime. It's, it's, you know, you have something to worry about. Now you're going to encounter your brother. You have, you're so busy with the, come on, you're a wealthy man. So you can, you know, you're going to go move, move over there. You're going to pass by hundreds of people selling pottery. You'll buy a few little jugs. What's the big deal? That, that Yaakov now needs to go back and put his life in jeopardy. Like we see, it was dangerous to be there alone. Um, so Rashi says by the righteous, their money is very stingy. They're very, very giving, and they're very, very, very benevolent. He's the grandson of Abraham, the kindest person, and he definitely had that immense compassion and givingness to him. However, it doesn't mean just because you give doesn't mean your money means nothing. It actually is very valuable, precisely because every bit of that earnings was earned in a kosher, godly way. So therefore, every little thing that God gives you, even if it's the most minute thing, is a gift from God. So we know in Torah it's very important not to throw things away that are useful, you know, or if you, you know, to, to not to mistreat anything, anything, everything has value. Everything must be treated with respect. So even the most tiniest little things was very valuable by Yaakov, and that's why he went back. Now the version, the commentators say it's actually also hidden. It, it's it's contained in the word levado. Levado means alone. Yaakov remained alone. But it has another meaning, they say. We exchange the letter Bez in the word Levado. The second letter is a Vez. We exchange the letter Vez and we fill it in with the letter Chaf. So if you take the Vez out and you insert a Chaf, so which Chaf can be Chaf or Kaf, 
the word becomes lekado. By Yavasar, Yaakov, Yaakov remained lekado because of his jug. Kad is a jug. Like we learned in the class we were learning Thursday night, that uh, Rivka goes down with a little jug and she fills it up with the 24 books of the Torah, right? 24, Kad, that was an amazing talk we had. So um, that's the meaning of Levado. So he's going back for these little jugs. So says um, the Dazakun, he came in Baleotosis, was one of the commentators. Rabbeinu Bahaya brings the same idea. Okay. Um, then there is, so that's one meaning in Yaakov's being alone. Then there is another meaning in the word Levado. This, the Midrash, Midrash Rabbah says that when the Midrash perks up, when you find the word Levado, where else do we find the word Levado? Levado means alone. So the Midrash says, I have a verse in Isaiah, in Yeshaya. And in Yeshaya it says in Isaiah chapter number, chapter two, I don't remember which verse. Um, it says over there, it talks about the prophecies regarding the future and the end time. Or rather, I don't like calling it the end time, the beginning time. Time when things are really going to start being the way they should be. So um, it says over there, it says that God will humble every arrogant being and all arrogance in the human race will be subdued and come crashing down. V'nizgav Hashem levado bayomahu. And on that awesome day, God alone will be exalted. That means there won't be any praise for anybody else because everybody will be so humbled by the infinite power and presence of the divine that all the praise will go and all the exaltation will go to God alone. So we're talking about the revelation of God that the world has not yet seen, a revelation that will cancel everything else. In other words, a revelation of the pure infinite light of God, so powerful and so strong that it will silence and it will humble or it will flatten, so to speak, every every haughty heart and every self-absorbed being to become utterly nullified and overwhelmed by the exclusivity of Hashem's greatness. And that's almost like God will remain alone. Again, doesn't mean the world won't be here, but we will be so awed, we will, in other words, simple words, God will knock all of our socks off. We will be stunned by God's greatness when Mashiach comes. So one of the ways of Torah is to compare two words. So we find the same word is used in our verse, Yaakov stood alone, and then Venizgav Hashem Levado, God is alone, Bayomahu on that day. So we take the same word, Levado, Levado. What does that mean? That when Yaakov is standing alone on that night, must be he was somehow tapping the infinite light of the future in which God is alone and Jacob is alone, Yaakov is alone. So now if you take these two meanings in the word levado, which can either mean the omnipresent, God alone, who is everywhere and alone, soul being, or it can mean a little jug. That's a little strange, no? The same word, two interpretations. One interpretation means, eh, he went back for small little jugs. In other words, the word levado seems is implying insignificant tiny little things 
with even even within one's physical possessions, it's not fancy schmancy jewelry. It's not expensive china. He's going back for paper plates, for plastic plates, a couple of plastic cups. And in today's days, that's what it would be: plastic cups. And 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 it's like it's like, it's like the most disposable thing: a plastic cup. And on the other meaning, Levado alone is referring to the revelation of the infinite as he will be revealed when Mashiach comes in which we will all see his absolute oneness. He is and there's none but him and all praise will go to him. How can one word hint to both these, these, these extremes? Very strange. Now, who says they're related? It's one word, but there's two other interpretations. One is according to the Talmud, and the other one is according to the Midrash. But it doesn't work that way. Torah is one. And therefore, if you have even ten interpretations in one word, they're interlaced and interwoven one with each other. They're not isolated and disconnected interpretations. They weave together to form one magnificent tapestry. So in our case... How do we join together such foreign ideas of a little tiny jug and Hashem's oneness? So the answer to that is the 19th Kislev. That's exactly the answer. Well, for a moment, let's stop for a moment and find that in the 19th of Kislev, as we mentioned earlier, the great celebration of next week, in which we're going to celebrate the 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 victory of Hasidism and its ability to 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 gush forth and bring light, and bring the most awesome light to the world regarding Hasidic revelation. There's something very strange. Hasidism is hands down the coolest part of the Torah. That's it. Anybody that has learned Hasidic philosophy and teachings are just can't get enough of it. And it's almost like it's hard afterwards to go into learning others. Unless you learn Hasidus so much, you can see the Hasidus in everything you learn, which is part of what we're talking about tonight. But really, it's like, hands down, the most mind-blowing part of the Torah. In other words, there is Torah lends itself to many levels of interpretation. We were learning in the in the other night, 600,000 interpretations on the simple level, and then on the various different levels. So... Um, and then you can learn mysticism, and above mysticism is Hasidic teaching. Um, so the question is, if it's so awesome, and it's so deep, and it's so mind-blowing, then where was it all the years? And how come my great-great-great-great-grandparents did not know these teachings? It's really, really a question that we have to ask ourselves, you know? Earlier generations did not study Torah on this level. They studied Torah more on a simpler level. They were way bigger geniuses than than my than me. I'm not a big genius, but they were very wise and knowledgeable. But they stuck mainly to the ranges of halacha, and of course also to midrashic type of teaching and this kind of thing. But even many of the mystics. But the awesome teachings of Hasidus were only released to the world about 250 years ago. 
Now, in Jewish history, that's not American history. That's a long time. That's the, almost the entire history of the United States of America. But in Jewish history, that's a little fraction of our history. It's only the last, you know, we're, 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 we've been around for three and a half thousand years. But the teachings of Hasidus are new to the world. So the question has been asked. So much so that it kind of was bothering people where people would question the, you couldn't question the authenticity of Hasidus because once you learn it, you inherently know that this is true and real. You know it, it, it resonates in the deepest core of your being. There's no question of its validity and its truth, but the question is a big question. How come earlier generations, which were far more virtuous than us, they were more refined, they were more dedicated, they were way more devoted, they were way more committed, and they were in a much higher stature than we, and yet they were not given this great knowledge. And only what we call us schleppers, us schlamazels, <laughs> us leftovers, so to speak, the, 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 the souls, so to speak, at the, at the bottom of the bucket, the leftovers at the bottom of the barrel, um, who are the, la- the last souls, were given this enormous, priceless um, gift. So there are two explanations of why we were merited it and it was not given to the early generations. The first explanation that is given by the Hasidic masters, because they themselves had to explain this. And they said, well, it wasn't released because the generations were able to serve God wholeheartedly and accomplished that which they needed to accomplish without it. Because their darkness was not as dense. They did not have such 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 so much garbage, so to speak, to deal with. They had less their world was not as low as it is now. Um, the world was on a, on a generally higher state. They lived in the more in communities where there was much more of a spiritual support system in the in the, the small eastern or, or over in European Shtetlach and uh, the in the in the in the Middle Eastern countries there was much less temptation as it is today didn't have all the all the stuff that are going on today and as a result of that they were able to combat the demons in the world without the heavy guns they didn't need such heavy artillery just like you see in modern warfare you know, when your enemy was coming and shooting bow, bows and arrows and slingshots, uh, you didn't need nuclear weapons to defend yourself. You can kind of, you know, defend yourself with also bows and arrows. Bow and arrow, maybe they some gunpowder, maybe, you know, they brought in, they started bringing in a little bit the rifle, the cannons. But that's about it. You were pretty good. But as the other side advanced and more modern uh, more devastating, powerful forms of weapons by bad people. So the good people need to arm themselves as well with such super, super, super powerful um, artillery. And that is the reason why, because the when, when as we get closer to the end of time, God leads us into lower parts of the creation. In other words, we begin to fix the world from the upper parts of the creation. Then we get... Throughout the generations, we are led to lower, 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 lower places until the last generation is dealing with very, very tough, a very tough world. And over here is where we need to make the tikkun. We need a breakthrough with godliness. So we need 
really heavy-duty equipment. And for that same, we need powerful lights that all the generations didn't have. For that reason, we were given what no other generation merited, or the last few generations merited what the earlier did. That's one explanation that is given. Then there is another explanation, saying as follows. As we draw closer to the end time, to the days of Mashiach, we begin to experience messianic light. The lights that are coming from the future is beginning to shine upon us. So the teachings of Chassidus are a little foretaste and a little trickle of the enormous enlightenment that God will shower the world in the time of Mashiach. So the earlier generations didn't merit it because they were still farther away from the revelations of the future. They were really still basking in the light of the early days of biblical history. During the early days of history of, of the of, of, of was enlightenment, God parted the sea, God came down on the mountain, he gave us the Torah. He, uh, so this was the revelations that were in the early days of history. And even when it got dark, the Jews were still holding on to the light of the past. But as we're getting, it's like when you go in a tunnel. When you go in a tunnel, um, I grew up in New York and we were always going here in Los Angeles. We don't have really tunnels that much. But in New York, we used to always go in the Battery Tunnel, in the Lincoln Tunnel, and the Holland Tunnel. You go in on one side and you know you watch the light, the daylight fade away into into the you know gloomy light of a tunnel. It's also lit, lit up, but it's a different kind of light. It's not the nice bright blue light of daylight. But then as you're nearing the end of the tunnel, you can I remember always you sometimes you sit in traffic and it's almost getting patient as kids, and then we would look and look and look and look, and then we were looking for when we can see already and get a sense that we're coming out of the tunnel. This is the times before GPS. So you couldn't see it on your uh, on your Google Maps. So you just were, you know, no clue. So you're sitting there impatient. We would look out, but you can when you start seeing that the the nature of the light in the tunnel is changing, you know, you're getting to the end. So that's what why. So the way it is explained in more in Hasidic terminology is that we find that on Sh- on, Sh- on um, Shabbos, on the seventh day, the holy day of the week, we're supposed to have special delicious foods. Uh, the, the foods of Shabbos are incomparably more gourmet than the foods of, of during the week. We're supposed to honor the Shabbos. But here's the thing. It says in the, it's really this identity. I didn't really pay attention that this is really the concept of big taste from Shabbos food is a idea that is taught to us by the Holy Ari. I thought it's from Tayameha that the idea of tasting from Shabbos food on Friday I thought it was a more ancient idea. It brought in halacha, but it's actually brought from the Ari, and from the Ari, it made its way into halacha. Ari is a great Kabbalist. So he taught that it's a mitzvah on Friday to taste from the Shabbos food. Even though it's only Friday, we should taste a little bit of the Shabbos food. So what does that mean? The days of Moshiach, the time of the redemption, is, is compared to Shabbos. And all the delicious food that we're going to have then is symbolic of the enormous enlightenment that God will feed us in that time. The enormous teachings, godly teachings that will fill the world during that time. So it's really happening on Shabbos. We will make Kiddush and then we will have this enormous feast. 
um, spiritual feast, which will, to some degree, also impact the physical. However, um, on Friday already, which means the last generations of exile, which are kind of already in the twilight zone, moving closer into the end day of Friday of history, moving closer to Shabbos, we are merited to receive the, the, this messianic revelation. And as we discussed at other times, the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidism, made his way into the Jewish world with his new teaching exactly, it's in the year 1740, he, the Baal Shem Tov was revealed as, a, as told that he was a hidden tzaddik, no one knew who he was, but when in, in, in 1733, um, he started, his, his cloak was removed and people started seeing that we're dealing with a godly human being here who has a message. And he was teaching for about 26 years. During his time that he was revealed, he, 1733, 1740, obviously, was seven years into his revelation. 1740 corresponds in the Hebrew year, 5,500. What that really, since creation. From the year 5,000, we entered into Friday of times. According to the a Jewish tradition, we have 6,000 years as the world corresponds to the six days of the week. So the first thousand years is Sunday, second thousand years is Monday, so on and so forth. Friday is also a thousand years, from the year 5,000 to the year 6,000. However, in the our Jewish calendar, the way you count time is first night, then day. So 500 years of the thousand years is night, and 500 years is day. So when is it the on the cosmic calendar Friday morning? in the year 5,500, corresponding to the secular date of 1740. And that's exactly when the Baal Shem Tov started to make an upheaval with his Hasidic approach and teachings in Eastern Europe. And that's where Hasidism comes from for the next, seven, uh, next nine generations, from 1740 till now. And it just gets brighter and brighter and brighter as we're getting so what do you see from here? We have two explanations regarding the 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 um, debut of this awesome teachings, but they're very different than each other. The first explanation has to do with the lowliness of the world, because the world is so extremely dark. Because without this, we would be completely over over uh, overwhelmed or, or uh, crushed by the, by the darkness and by the evil in the world, and we would ourselves become completely corrupted. So in order to strengthen us, we need this intense light. So it's because of the darkness, because of a very... In other words, what brings the light is an enormous negativity. It's a pathetic time. It's a dark time. It's a horrible time. So that's why we need a lifesaver. And this is the Hasidic teachings that's here. It's a lifesaver. On the other hand, we are also taught the opposite. The same that really it's because we're, 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 we're moving into the brightest of times. And the reason that the Hasidic teachings is because it's because of the enorm, because of the awesomeness of the time that it's so close to Mashiach. Similar to the, as we spoke before, a tiny jug, Levado alone, in a, in a, in a, because of a tiny jug. 
or alone because the exclusivity of God's infinite light. But but what? Which one really is it? And the answer is obviously the two are connected. And how are the two connected? The two are connected as follows. We learned many times that God creates a creation. And in the creation God created, there is the low and there is the high. And there is the very, 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 very low. And there is the very, 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 very high. Creation is not uniform. Multiples of multitudes of levels. What is considered high and what is considered low? Low is that which is in its own consciousness and its own awareness distant from God. That's low. And therefore, the primary lowness in general is the physical. Because physicality is unaware of a force creating it. Physicality feels and senses that it exists from within itself. It doesn't even feel that it needs to have an explanation of why or how it is. It just is, and it's comfortable. That's it. Physical, it's physical. It's the material. It makes, it gives off a facade as if it always was. It always will be. It is because it is. Don't ask questions. We're okay. It's good. That's the physical. The spiritual, but then, and then, that's the low. And within the physical, we know there are things that are more refined, and therefore it does ask a question. Who and how and why I'm here. For example, Abraham, amongst all physical people, he asked the question because he was a little bit of a refined child. So he made that question. He didn't accept the physical notion we're just here because we're here. He asked who, what, where, until he went and they discovered God. Now, and in the world itself, you know, places in the world, people that are more prone to its spiritual searching and yearning, and those that are very content in just being, living for themselves, for their own egos, for their entire life, and are not bothered by it at all. That's called extremely materialistic, hedonistic, self, you know, comfortable in one's own existence, one's limited, finite, you know, tiny sliver of, of beingness and thinking that that's all that there is to serve and to worship. That's the physical. It's low. And then there is the high. What's the most high? The most high is the infinite exp- light of God. That's the most high. And then between the the, the the ultimate revelation of God, which is high because it's closest to revealing truth, God's infinity, God's absoluteness. So the light of God is the most high. Between that is endless, endless, endless levels. To like as as the infinite light dims a little bit and dims a little bit, till it will it can even allow for some other creatures or beings or worlds to exist. But even those incredible spiritual worlds, because they're very high, are so conscious of the infinite that they basically are dissolved in God. They don't have much self at all. And then the light further descends and and, and, and condenses and gets less. And the world and the experience of existence other than God starts to become more, more pronounced and more pronounced and more pronounced. Somewhere along the way, angels come into existence that have somewhat of an a, a, an awareness of self and a being of self, but they also have an awareness, an intrinsic awareness of source, of a creator. And it goes down, 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 
until we get to the physical. And that's the lowest because the lowest doesn't feel God at all. So you have the high and you have the low. And what's the purpose? The purpose is to take the very, very high and merge it with the very, very low. That the lowest point of existence, which means the physical earth, and within the physical earth, those parts of the physical earth that are the most unspiritual and the most un unseeking of the divine message or a divine truth, completely ripped away and torn away and stuck, so to speak, in their own stuff, stuffiness of their own existence, yet even they should become enlightened. And what kind of an enlightenment should they have? They should experience the ultimate truth of God's infinity. <laughs> so wishful thinking. To enlighten, to bridge the two together and Here's the trick. God can't do it. He said, God can do it. Fine. He can, he, 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 can, he can make the most ignorant become the most enlightened. God ties his own hands behind his back, and he will not do it. The work is given to us. To who was the job given? The job was given to Israel, to the Jewish people. And how will Israel, the Jewish people, accomplish this? They will utilize the Torah. So here we have the Torah by the application of the Torah through the Jewish people throughout millennium and millennium. All this time, time, time. And spreading throughout the entire earth, across the entire world, learning the Holy Torah and doing the holy and doing the these holy awesome mitzvot. This is how we create the bridge and the fusion. And one day we will wake up and earth will be brighter than heaven. That's just what's going to happen. That's Mashiach. And that's the purpose. God wants to have a home in the law. The earth will be so aware of God, so powerfully aware of, of the, uh, and the and it will be Experienced in the lowest of places, the highest lights, the, the literally the infinite lights that are infinitely above the creation, will be experienced by Earth, by the lowest points in, in the world. Now, so there's a marriage, a marriage of that which is endlessly being, so to speak, to that which is infinitesimally small. Now, what happens as a result of this marriage? As a result of this marriage, the essence of God is tapped. See, the high that we spoke about, the high, very, very, very high, is not the essence of God. It's, as we said, it's, it's, it's the light of Hashem. It's where God's truth is experienced the most, but it's experience. It's revelation of the infinite. And by virtue of it being the revelation of the infinite, it hovers above the creation because the creation being finite can't handle it. It cannot reveal itself in the finite world. And definitely not in the lower points of the finite creation. And definitely not in the lowest point of the finite creation. So there is the high, there is the low, 
in order to marry the high and the low, for them to become unified, someone that transcends all definitions of high and low must be revealed. And that is God's very self. Because God cannot be defined with any definitions. Neither high, neither low, neither infinite, neither finite. One thing we know about him is that he is the force beyond all beingness. And since he is the force beyond all beingness, he is the force beyond or the power beyond behind infinite light. Because he was the infinite light. The infinite light is revealing him. So he is... It's almost like there's the light and there is the luminary from where the light comes from, the light. So he is the, and he is also the being and the force that brings the low into existence. In other words, that which is ignorant and and um, completely um, disconnected from anything spiritual, holy, and godly, Right, the most selfish of things, the most stuck up entity. After all philosophical philosophical discussions of how it came to be, it too cannot it too doesn't exist only because of God. So it too is him in the in the ultimate truest of the sense there's it is only him. There's him revealing himself and him concealing himself. But it's both him. And when the very him, the very, very essence of God emerges, only the, only only his very self can cause this fusion and bring the two together. That, But what will happen? The essence is the power now that's being tapped, that's emerging. And what is it doing? It's taking the greatest revelation and making it re- be revealed in that which is... Co- Utterly not a vessel for that revelation. Utterly not a container for it. And yet, in it shines the greatest light. So that's the purpose. That's the end game. So now we'll understand if this is the if, if this is the way it works. So we'll get to understand how the beginnings of the grand finale of this great grand achievement um, is realized. In other words, everything comes in stages. So this doesn't just pop out one day. Mashiach isn't just one day out of nowhere, bang, it's here. There's a process. There's, there's a leading up. There is a, a, a system of, 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 of uh, a certain progression to the Mashiach state. And as we approach the last final stages of the progression of to the to Mashiach's world, we need to be engaged and do things that reflect this marriage and this fusion. Which means during the major course of our history, we're learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, but it isn't necessarily visible within our observance of Torah and mitzvahs, the ultimate purpose. This fusion is not necessarily sensed and felt in our observance. But as we get closer to the finish line, we we begin to, first of all, to 
recognize what the game was, what this whole uh, experience was all about. And not only that, but we get to engage and practice doing exactly that in our own lives and in our own experiencing, unifying the super high with the super low. So for instance, the first, we said before, the power that, it, that brings and achieves this fusion of, 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 of the infinite light with a very dark earth. The power that does that is that the Jewish people need to do it. But how do we do it? We do it through the Torah. So even though we've been studying Torah for millennium, nevertheless, in the last short period of our Torah observance, we suddenly get to experience the phenomenon of joining the highest point of the Torah with the lowest point of the Torah. What do we mean by that? We mean as follows. When God gave the Torah, the Torah came in, in generally in two layers, heaven and earth. The earth part of the Torah is called the extra, the ex, the extroteric um, um, realm of the Torah. What is that? Practical Torah in which teaches a person observance. Included in that is the code of Jewish law, Shulchan Aruch. First of all, the five books of the Torah and scripture, however interpreted and read in its most simplistic form, what we call pshat and so forth, in which we're not dealing with you know, spiritual things. We're seeing everything for its simple meaning as a simple physical story down here below, a story or a law and so forth, and then carried over into the oral law. Which is the Torah Shabbat Peh, which I'm sorry, which is the Shulchan we spoke before, the Code of Jewish Law, the Talmud, the Mishnah. All that is study of intricate behavior, legal study of uh, the legalities of Torah. All aspects of Torah governing physical behavior. That's the earth of Torah. Torah as it is applies to, to earthy living, kosher, not kosher, innocent, guilty, things like that pure, impure, all the six parts of the Mishnah which make up the infrastructure, the, the skeleton of all Torah law. And that is what's studied by most Jews when we talk about Torah study. This is the primary occupation. Then there has always been from the dawn of time the heaven of Torah. And what's the heaven of Torah? Mystical concepts. Mystical concepts of Torah, for instance, are the divine names. Deep secrets of Kabbalah, of mysteries of, the, of, of Hashem's names, and angelic beings, and other celestial worlds, and so on and so forth. Now these teachings, although they were not that common, meaning most people who studied, most scholars, stuck and, 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 and were, were primarily invested, engaged in the study of the revealed Torah, and didn't dabble so much in the mystical but there were saintly, holy people. Usually they were very, very, people of a very high stature, a very high caliber, who were very removed from physical indulgences. They were saintly people, people who didn't eat much and didn't drink much and fasted most of their lives and, and, and submerged themselves in freezing cold mikvahs, all to gain a certain spiritual sensitivity to thin out the body and to increase the soul. And those and those exalted, um, um, 
you know, usually more aesthetic, what do they call them? Uh, um, not aesthetic, how do they call them? Uh, aesthetics, yeah. Those, um, um, you know, uh, sublime individuals would study the heaven part of the Torah. But there was always a sense that these are two Torahs, heaven and earth. There wasn't really a merger. And there were people who obviously knew both, as we spoke. Whoever knew the hidden secrets of the Torah was also very well, well versed in the revealed part of the Torah. But it was always remained two separate arenas in which you didn't like, they didn't cross over. It was like, it's almost like you wore a different, a different hat when you studied one and when you studied the other. Until Hasidism came to the world. And Hasidism bridged a bridge. Not only did it bridge a bridge, but actually harmonized the two parts of the Torah in a way that they become so intertwined that, in, that if, if you, when you learn Hasidus and you learn it well, you become a seasoned student of Hasidus, you automatically, whatever you study in the extra part of the Torah, you're immediately thinking, what is its spiritual, abstract, uh, mystical meaning? And the two are interwoven, and, and that's the style of Hasidism, which Kabbalah doesn't even have. Hasidism has this, and it's the staple of Hasidism. Primarily, amongst Hasidic teachers, this is something that was accomplished enormously by the Chabad masters. Um, Reb Shneer Zalman of Liadi was destined to be the one who would cause this murder. So much so, that the day he was born, um, or maybe before he was born, the, the uh, no, 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 I think it was the day of his bris. I have to research it. But the Balshantov, the founder of Hasidism, um, was aware of this. Now, let's, let, let me give a little history here. Rebshner Zalman of Liadi, the founder of Chabad Hasidism, was a student of the student of the Baal Shem Tov. So the Baal Shem Tov passed away in Tov Kuf Chaf, which is in 1760. In 1760. Um, the Alter Rebbe, Rebshner Zalman of Liadi, at that time was 15 years old when the Baal Shem Tov passed away. Because the Alter Rebbe was born in 1745. And um, the, the, the Alter didn't study by the Balshemta. When the Balshemta passed away in 1760, his student, Rebdov Ber, the Magad of Mizrich, became the Rebbe, the leader of the Hasidic movement, the fledgling Hasidic movement, for 12 years. Then the Mizrich and Magad passed away. The Alter Rebbe of Shneir Zalman of Liadi went, and I think for the last seven years of the Magad's life was a student of his. And that's where he was introduced to Hasidism. But when Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi was born, the Baal Shem Tov knew about this awesome soul that was coming to the world. And he said, I think it was the day of his circumcision, he sat with his students and he said, today this enormous new neshama that came to the world was given a name. And his name is Shnei Or. His name was Shnei Or Zalman. And Shnei Or comes from the word two lights. 
because he will illuminate the world with the light of the revealed Torah, and he will also illuminate the world with the lights of the secrets of the Torah. That's the meaning of the word. His word, shnei or, it's one word, shnei or, but can be split in half. Shnei, which means two, or it means light. Two lights. That he has two lights. The lights of the revealed Torah and the lights of the esoteric. Now, in his lifetime, he actually, this Roshner Zalman, when he grew up, and he became an enormous, enormous teacher, scholar, mystic, and, and he actually authored two of the most fundamental books in the Jewish library. One is a Shulchan Aruch, in which he compiled an actual book of Jewish conduct, halachic conduct. And it's one of the primary halachic authoritative uh, books that there are. The Shulchan Aruch of, it's called Shulchan Aruch HaRav of the Alter Rebbe. It's not the only Shulchan Aruch, but it's a very, has a very strong impact on halach. It's a work of absolute genius. Now, um, in addition to that, he authored the book, he authored many books, but the, one of his, his, his crown jewel is the book of the Tanya, which is the fundamental fundamentals of Hasidism. So he authored both a book contributing to the esoteric, to the deeper parts of the Torah, and also to the extraterric. So it's two, two things. But here's the thing. These two lights are both part of one name. When his name was Shnei Ar, means that they're both one name. Two lights making up one name. Because that was his innovation. His innovation was that he was swimming through the chant, through those seas of both Torahs in a way where he didn't see any separation and difference between one part of Torah and the other part of Torah. To him, it was one vast ocean. And in every aspect, he combines the two. There is a powerful fusion and integration. Now, let me actually go back to the name Shneor. So when you do a investigation, where did the name Shneor start? Shneor is not a biblical name. Moshe is a biblical name. Isaac, Jacob, right? Shmuel, Samuel, Mordechai. Uh, where is the name Shneor come from? So there is a book um, discussing, halachic book, Discussing the, the 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 origins of names in 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 um, this is in part of Evan Ezra where it talks about the laws of divorce and over there it's very important to know the correct spelling of names so it discusses the various different names so in that book I'll tell you what the name of the safe is hold on sort over here. Oh, here we are. Give me a second. Okay. Let me give you the book. So it wasn't over here. So it's over here. So today I just want to give you this is very special.
Oh, here we are. Yamshal Shlomo. In the in the in the in the Sefer Yamshal Shlomo in Gitten, Perik Dalid. And uh, the Chida also brings this. Where did the name Schneer come from? The name Schneer came, but it's an early name, meaning early, not biblical. But, um, there are many names in, in the, amongst the Jewish people that are names in Yiddish, Yiddish name. Schneer is not a Yiddish name, but it's, a, but it's still, it's not biblical, but, but yet early on. And what happened? There was a child born, and he had two grandparents. You name after, sometimes we give after name. name. One grandparent, his name was Mayer. Mayer. The other grandfather's name was Uri. It was an Uri, and there was a name Mayer. So they, maybe there was a dispute between the husband and the wife. Uh, each one wanted a name after their grandfather. So one wanted to name the name baby Mayer, and the other one wanted to name the name Uri. So they, the rabbi resolved it, and he said, listen, Mayer means light, luminous, and Uri means my light. I have a good thing. Name him Shnei-Ur, two lights. So you'll get the two lights, the light of Mayer and the light of Uri. And that was the seed and the original origination of this name. And then obviously it became a common name, the name Shneir. You see its original name means a fusion of two lights. And this is what the Baal Shem Tov said. He will illuminate the world, but he will fuse the two lights together. Now, by doing that, he really had a cosmic impact. Because by the very, very rules and regulations of the Torah itself, every system comes with certain rules that govern the system. Torah is a discipline. It's a science. It's a divine science. It has an external part and it has an internal part. It has a, it's a whole globe. It has an earth and it has a heaven. And heaven is above and earth is below. And based on the system, of the of the of of this discipline, of this of this uh, construct, the ceiling is the ceiling and the floor is the floor. And you can't you can't bring the ceiling, you can't bring the roof down on the floor because it's two separate things. The 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 brightness and the refinement and the abstractness of the heaven of the esoteric doesn't cannot show itself. Doesn't have a vessel in the in the extrateric that deals with such. With, with with earth, matters of earth. Because of the finitude of earth, it's not a vessel for the bright night, for the brightness of these incredible abstract um, um, otherworldly ideas. And that's the reason why for all generations these two realms remained separated. So how did Ripshner Zalman of Liadi break that barrier? How did he disregard the very rules of the Torah itself. Was he, how did he do that? And the answer is given. He went deeper into the Torah. He unplugged the essence of the Torah. See, Trum, Rav Shneer Zalman of Liadi, we were studying the emanation of the Torah. The Torah was revealing herself. Torah was revealing herself as a light, two types of light, an esoteric light, which is a more revealing light and a more constricted form of light, a condensed light, two different forms of light, complete different forms. 
Reb Shneir Zalman of Liadi said, let's get past the light. Light is great. I want, I want to touch the essence. Now, why was he able to do it? Not because he's so great. He was so great. But because it was time. God sent his soul down into this world through him to reveal the essence. The essence of the Torah is the essence of its esoteric revelations and of its most basic um, 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 instructions for, for physical living. It's one Torah. It's coming. From, it's all. It's all God's essential wisdom, expressing itself this way or that way. As long as we remain in the realm of light and emanation, then the two are utterly distinct and separated. But if you plug the essence and you reveal the essence, then you can. Then that is what unifies both and can integrate. And in, and and to and and weave together both as absolutely one entity. That was that's the um, that was the first contribution. And again, this paves the way for the ultimate purpose of creation to achieve the very same thing in the world as we're going to see in a moment. Now, once. It was now again. This you see further and further. The successors of Rosh Hashanah of Liyadi, the next six generations of Chabad teachers, especially the Lubavitcher Rebbe, has volumes and volumes of volumes, including of this teaching is the teaching I'm teaching you tonight. Currently tonight, it's one of the Rebbe's teachings. If you read his teachings, you will always see that he's always beginning to explain a intricate or a a a in a matter of torah on the simplest of levels he asks questions where he where it's it's it doesn't feel like it's going to be esoteric and it's going to be like abstract that's dealing with technical parts of torah he can literally we you know build ask and like any torah scholar and suddenly out of nowhere he opens it up and he drops and he, and he suddenly, you know, peels away the, the external layers and suddenly opens up to the deepest, most abstract truths. And he shows you how these most abstract, highest, incredible ideas are reflected in this intricate Talmudic, you know, discussion between these two rabbis, which seems to be so, so um, minute and so about a, you know, halachic question whether this is kosher or not, the vast, infinite, abstract ideas that are behind it. And this is classic of the Rebbe. You get it to see it in all of his teachings. It's like he, he like zips through all aspects of Torah to the highest, to the, into the from the deepest inner point to most external surface. And it's all one. He has it as a continuation of his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Shnei Or, who, who, who in his brilliance and in his godly mission that God gave him, opened up a new way of learning Torah. And that is the uniqueness of Hasidism. Now, just like it is accomplished in the Torah, the ones who implement the Torah in the world are the Jewish people. So in the latter years of, of, of Jewish history, we find the same 
element happening within the Jewish soul and the Jewish experience. Both collectively as the Jewish people as a whole, the highest and the low meet, as we're going to see that Hasidism connected the highest, loftiest Jew with the most simplest of people, which was not something that you saw amongst amongst the Jewish people throughout history. There was a great hierarchy. There was a whole system. And there were the great Jewish elites. I don't mean elites in a negative way, but just huge scholars and rabbis. But they had very, very little to do. They had a lot of connections with the people on the higher spheres students and people that were very knowledgeable and great, you know, well, Jewish leaders, um, they were connecting to these great rabbis. But the people at the bottom, 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 bottom of the, of the, of this, um, what do you call it, of this uh, paradigm, were, uh, didn't have much interaction and much connection with these great rabbis. Hasidism changed it all, as we're still going to see. There was an intermingling between the highest, greatest, most saintly of Jews, and they came down to the level of the simple people. But before we go there, we'll stop for a moment, and we'll show first how within each Jew on its own, Hasidism has a magical formula. It accomplishes something so magnificent and so crazy, and that is as follows. Within ourselves, we have in our soul, in our holy side, in our soul, we have um, the more esoteric part of our soul, the heavenly part in our soul, and then we have the more grounded um, um, human side of the soul. Our soul, which is a piece of God from above, comes down to function as a human being. And therefore, with regular human powers, part of the human powers is what make up primarily our human powers are our human intelligence and our emotions and then thought, speech and action, which all express through a physical body. And that's basically our persona. But our intelligence and our emotions are more are we understand are finite and limited. So what is our heaven? What is our uh, infinite light of our soul. Our soul is a piece of God, so it's a piece of infinity. What's that infinity in our soul? The infinity of our soul is our faith. Faith. Super rational, super logical faith. Which is a connection to God that is incomprehensible. Faith is not what we understand. It's not what we can grasp. We just have like the sixth sense. But what it really means, it's our soul as it transcends the faculties of the body and it has an intrinsic either either it sees god on one level and it senses god it sees god and even deeper than that it's one with god and therefore it just is attached with an infinite bound and it basically can drive us to do insane things for our connection to god even to the point of giving up one's life which has been a staple of the Jewish people throughout history were only here today because because of the heroes of the past that have given it all up not to lose their connection, even though so much pressure was put upon the communities of the Jewish people to convert to Christianity, to Islam. This has been blood-soaked history. Countless men, women, children. and But 
as we, we see in the parsha, you know, Yaakov remains standing after all the injuries, after all the infliction, steadfast. These are not through our human, it wasn't philosophy that made us do that. It wasn't calculation, it wasn't rational thoughts. It was a superhuman strength. It was, a, it was because God, because these people experienced their soul connection to God that was just infinite. No one can separate them, even at the threat of death. Of death. So faith, self-sacrifice, all, these are all the superpowers of the soul. Now, for many generations, even though for, all, for the mostly generations of Jewish history, faith remained relegated in the realm of faith and intellect remained in the realm of intellect. So Jews were brilliant. They studied a lot of Torah and they had enormous philosophic philosophy and their philosophy and their minds led them to a keen and sharp understanding of Hashem, of God. However, their whole entire and then on the other hand, they had tremendous reservoirs of faith. But the two remained separated. Which means if you read the ancient writings of Jewish philosophy and you read their philosophical discussions, like I'll give you a perfect example, Maimonides' um, Guide to the Perplexed. Enormous philosophical discussions. But you can sense that it's it's human logic. It has like... It has the it, it it feels very much like intellect. When you study Hasidism, you see something very interesting. On the one hand, Hasidism is, is logic. It's we study it, we learn it, we spend hours here grasping ideas. But at the same time, you can sense that these ideas are really divine ideas. They're higher than. They're infinite ideas. So then you wonder, how can my mind grasp them and chew them? And and the answer is, it's it's a mystery. Hasidism has done the most incredible thing. It merged the soul's faith and super rational convictions and enabled it to come filtering into the mind. That the mind understands the faith. Without diminishing it to human logic. It remains divine logic, but still it, and yet emerges with our human, with our human intelligence. It's really, really uh, uh, impossible to understand what is incomprehensible, to know what is unknowable, but to know it, not just to believe it. That's the gift of Hasidism. How was that accomplished? How was it accomplished that these are two sections of the soul? There is the heavenly part of the soul that is not inside the body. And there is the lower tail end of the soul that is vested in the body. And one is constricted and one is not constricted. And what is constricted is constricted and what is inconstricted is not constricted. And they don't, the the limitation is on both ends. A finite entity can't experience infinity because it's finite. And the infinite cannot lend it, cannot shine into the finite without reducing itself because it's infinite. It doesn't have a nest in a finite vessel. So it ignores the finite vessel because it can't fit itself into it. Like a tall person is in a sense limited by being tall because they can't hide so well. So the infinity of the soul 
is stuck in its infinity and it can't manifest and reveal itself in the finite vessels of a human mind. And so it was throughout the generations. So it's not like we didn't experience both these levels. We operated on our logic and our philosophy, and we also operated when time was needed and our minds would not carry us through. We pushed the button and opened up our infinite faith, and we were and we and, and we were and we were and we were fueled by our faith. So it was almost like two experiences. In, in, in our connection to God. Till the Holy Baal Shem Tov came and he broke that barrier and primarily where it's felt very strongly again is in the Chabad teachings. Because here as well, what do we find? Again, a fusion. A miraculous fusion. For, for our audience, Sorry, we lost each other. Okay. For our audience over here, I don't have to explain that this is real. You know it. If you, if you ever came to a Thursday night class, to uh, meaning to the, the, study those three-hour classes that we do, you realize it. This is divine wisdom, but yet we're understanding it. And sometimes I'm sure it goes over your head, and most and so much of it goes over my head. But yet... When we do crack through and it starts to shine, it's like it's like you 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 feel this is infinite. This is like, and yet we're understanding it. How did the Alter Rebbe do this? How did he merge the power of faith and unify it with intellect? And the answer is, the Alter Rebbe, the Rishner Zalman of Liadi, because through Hasidus, what did he do? He unplugged the essence of the soul. The essence of the soul is the essence of both the infinite light of the soul, its faith and its and its ability of its its uh, transcendental ability of self sacrifice and infinite drive and so forth. It's also the essence of its of the soul's logic, understanding, and emotions. Because it's only one soul. These are powers of the soul, but it's one soul. And when you and the soul is the truth of both these dimensions. So as long as the essence of the soul is obscured, and all we have to work with is its emanations, like it was throughout all of Jewish history. So that created this divide. But since we're getting closer to Mashiach, which Mashiach is all about, the revelation of the essence of God, and how does the essence of God reveal himself? Through the essence of the Torah revealed in the essence of the Jewish people, which enable us to bridge both the highest teaching parts of the Torah and fuse it with the lowest parts of the Torah meaning with the more down-to-earth part of the Torah, the most finite elements of the Torah, like we discussed earlier, and also to bridge 
the highest infinite powers of the soul with the more tangible, um, earthy, human entities of our soul. Which leads us to what I started saying before, also affected the same effect on the Jewish people as a whole. Because regarding the Jewish people, the Jewish people are also considered one soul, a collective soul. And amongst the Jewish people, there were the great rabbis, which are the head, the heaven of the Jewish people. There is the simple people. And if we know the story of Jewish history, the rabbis were a class on their own. Then there was the intermediate people. And then there were the the simple folk, the, the plain people. And of course, there was influence. There was always influence, but it was a distant influence. It wasn't a, 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 a complete fusion and a oneness. Anybody that knows a little bit of Hasidic history knows that that was the wonder of the Holy Balshemtov. The Balshemtov would walk in. He was this incredible mystic and saint who experienced the highest divine revelations of any human being ever. And yet he would walk like a simple person through the marketplaces and engage the most simplest of people who didn't know how to, who were literally illiterate, who didn't know how to read. He would talk with them and he would ask them how they're doing and he would tell them a little story from the Midrash and he would inspire and he would, he would wake up the spark inside their soul. And he felt it was his mission. Personally took an interest and went from city to city, from town to town inspiring and reaching out and caring about all the simple details of, of, of men, women, and children. And it wasn't only him. He inspired entire generations of leaders who literally saved the Jewish people by doing exactly that. God, in his tremendous mercy, 250 to 300 years ago, opened up the gates of heaven and went to a secret treasure trove and took out the deepest, highest souls ever to be and released them all in one shot at that time to start preparing the world for the resurrection, for the great messianic age. And these incredible souls followed, who were students of the Bolshemtov, did exactly that. They came to towns, they came to villages. And what happened was hundreds of, till that time, there wasn't such a thing that you would go to the rabbi when you had a physical issue, you know, these great Hasidic masters were known as big miracle workers. People came to them and they unloaded their deepest troubles. And if they had problems, they couldn't pay the rent or they couldn't do this and they couldn't marry off their daughters or they couldn't, or they needed help with the problem. They came with their spiritual maladies as well. They came for seeking advice of how to do children, if they sinned, how to gain repentance and rectification. But these rebbies were flooded. Thousands of people came to them and everybody alike, rabbis, great Torah scholars would stand shoulder to shoulder with simple people. That's the way it was in every Hasidic court. Because there was suddenly a fusion. I'll share with you an unbelievable story that someone, it's, it's a famous story, but I'll share it with you today because I woke up in the morning and someone WhatsApped me this story, my brother-in-law. I knew the story before, but it's just refreshing to read it. And I'll share it with you today showing this exact point. Beautiful story. So there was a name. His name is Rabbi. Uh, uh, there was a there's a Jew lives in lived in Williamsburg, which is by the way a very Hasidic community, but a Satmar Hasidic community. The name of this Jew was Rabbi Aaron David Newman. Okay, he grew up in Ukraine. He was born in Ukraine. 
in a, in a place called Vizhnitz. Vizhnitz is close to Romanian Ukrainian, Ukraine next to Romania. That's where he was born when he was six years old. His family moved to Belgium. He was born in 1934. When he was six years old, 1940, his family moved to, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. In 1934, he was born. He was, when he was about maybe 1939, that time, his family moved to Belgium. But as soon after they moved, because it was a flourishing Jewish community then in Belgium, and as soon as they moved, the Nazis, a little while later, the Nazis came in. And because of the Nazis coming in a lot of, and they started deporting the Jews and killing the Jews and so on and so forth. The Jews had to flee. Everybody fled. Whoever was able to get out, his family managed to get out and they crossed the border into France. Um, and they had some family members in Mar, Marseille. That's how you forget yeah, in Marseille. And so they went, that's where they went. There was a grandmother that was there and an aunt. Um, there was, he says there was a, a, a nice Chabad community, Lubavitch community there. Uh, their family was not Chabad, but they were uh, they were very, very well taken care of. They took them in and people. But there was a huge, at that time, there was a big influx of refugees and it was, it was literally um, a mess. And there was a lack of of provisions to take care of all these people, food and shelter and that. So they would move from day to day, from house to house. And he's six years old describing this. Him and his whole family were like always on the run from here, from there. And then when the Nazis came into France, into Paris, it became much worse. And again, much greater refugees were pouring in every day. It was terrible. It was literally a hunger, a famine. People didn't have what to eat. So in the course of all of this, the family split up and he was put in and he didn't come and, and thank God his family survived. But he didn't meet up with his family till after the war. So this is 1940 till after the war. So he's a little boy. He was put into an orphanage. Uh, the orphanage was filled with Jewish children, uh, survivors, uh, that, that many of them, his parents were killed. Uh, many of them that the parents were sent away. And he says it was just terrible in the orphanage. He remembers, you hear crying and crying. Kids would cry, cry out for their parents, but the parents were nowhere to be, you know, there. And then, but in the, in the beginning, at least there was food. But then as the war carried on, there was a very big shortage of food. And there were days literally that the kids went hungry. There was no, nothing for them to eat. It was just a horrific state. So it was in the summer of 1941, in the midst of the, extreme darkness, as dark as it could get for these poor children. Um, a man shows up. And um, they don't know his name. And he's come with this big, big, big bag, with a bag. And he has French baguettes, like breads. And he has sardines and tuna, and different foods, and sometimes potatoes. And he would come to the children and he would, he would distribute the food to the children, but he just, wouldn't just distribute the food here, take the food. He, would, he started to get, to, to get to know all the children. He didn't come once. He came for a few weeks every single day. And he spent hours in the orphanage feeding these children and befriending all these little children. And again, they didn't know his name. They called him Monsieur, which means Mr. in French. And he would soothe them and talk and feed them 
And many of the children didn't want to eat. So he would take these little these children and he would put them on his lap and he would tell them stories. And he would, um, and he would, and sometimes he would sit down on the floor and play with the children and literally with a, with a spoon, sit there and spend, you know, a half an hour feeding one child and then the next. And he says the kids loved him so much that one of the kids who actually was eating pretended that he's not eating so that he can also go on his lap and he can tell them stories. Amazingly, this was their only, like, he finally had a human being that cared for them and they connected so deeply. And they loved him. And he knew every single one by their name. There's many children there. He knew every single one by their name, but they didn't know his name. They only knew him as Mansir. Anyways, he was there for a few weeks during the 1941 in the summer, and then he was gone. He said, this person literally saved the lives of so many of these children. He says, me included, because I definitely would have not made it. Uh, and that period of time that we had him gave us such a boost and gave us such strength. He nurtured so many of us back to, to life. I'm sure it wasn't a picnic afterwards for these children from 1941 till the war was over. And 1944 it was difficult and they made through hellish experiences. But the end, he says, I was reunited with my family. Finally, in 1957, now he's again, at that time he was six, seven years old. Now he is 23 years old. He moved to New York to the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn. His uncle says to him that um, there is a great rabbi, not too far, known as the Lubavitch Rebbe, and he's an enormously, he's an, extra, he's an extraordinary human being. You know, would you like to have an audience with the Rebbe? So this, uh, this young man said, of course. So we made an appointment. The appointment took quite a long. There was, you know, you had to wait a few, sometimes weeks, maybe a few months. The day the appointment came, he shows up. He's sitting in the waiting room. He's saying psalms before you go into a righteous individual. It's sounding praying. You're hoping that the meeting, you know, you want to prepare yourself spiritually. And he says he's watching men, women from all walks of life going in and out from the rabbi. He comes in. He's again. He's a 23 year old man, fellow. Walks into the Rebbe and the moment and the Rebbe and the Rebbe looks up and says to him, Duvidal. And he looks, he says, How does he know my name? I was never here before. And he says, Duvidal. And then he realized he couldn't. He says, Monsieur. He almost fainted. The Rebbe had recognized him. And, there, and he realized at that moment that this was the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe himself, was this monsieur who visited the orphanage. And after his private audience with the Rebbe, he researched a little bit. And he found out that when the Rebbe was running away, escaping Europe, him and his wife, his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, was doing whatever he can to get him out of Europe. Um, for a while... He was traveling while he was papers. They were middle taking care of his papers and whatever he needed, the visa and whatever it is, in order for him to get on because he got onto it later on the boat. He was traveling between Nice and Marseille. And somehow he found out about this orphanage. So during every single day, the Rebbe would go. Now, he, to him, he was just going crazy, he says, to realize that the greatest of minds, the greatest tzaddik, the greatest rabbi, a scholar of such level, 
was literally for hours sitting on the floor with these little children, feeding each one of them and talking and telling them stories and, 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 and lifting their spirits was, was beyond. But that is, that is the nature of a Hasidic Rebbe. That is the essence of it. The highest of the high and the lowest meets the most simplest, uh, but how? Same idea. Because Hasidism is the essence, brings forth the essence of the Jewish people. And in the essence of the Jewish people, there is no divisions between rabbi and layman, between scholar and simpleton. It's the same soul. It's the same divine spark. It's one God. But before the revelation of Hasidism, this type of connection didn't exist. From here, we move on to the next. Once this high and low are connected in the, in the, once the high and low are connected both in Torah and in the Jewish people, now you have the perfect recipe because as we said before, Torah and Israel are the channels through which the purpose of creation is realized. And that is that the divine should be revealed down here in the world. The highest of the high should be revealed in the lowest of the low. So now we're ready for that. Because once it has already been revealed in Israel and in the Torah, it can be implemented in the world. So um, what are what is the premise? What is the point of the 19th of Kislev, as we spoke before, the great holiday, when the green light was given, when permission was granted that Hasidism should issue forth and flood the world? The greatest um, um, uh, uh, most noble achievement and most important task, so to speak, from in in the when, when anybody studies or learns Hasidis, is that it is your task and your absolute responsibility and obligation to share it with others. Hasidism is not meant to be privately experienced in the comfort of your own life and exclusive to exclusive group of people. Hasidism is meant to flood the world. When the holy soul of the Baal Shem Tov, while he was alive, the founder of Hasidism, ascended to heaven, he went into, he was marching around heaven, and he was alive physically, but he was able to, these great saintly people were able to rise their, lift their consciousness up to the higher realms. So he would literally soar up to heaven. One time, he writes in a letter, he knocked on the door of Mashiach, the chamber of the Messiah, Mashiach. And he came inside and he said to Mashiach, when are you coming? You know, it's we're pretty miserable out there and it's getting very late. You're way overdue. Uh, can we maybe get an ETA? That was his question. ETA, please. And Mashiach said to him, when your teachings will flood the world. I'm waiting for you. Mashiach said to the Baal I'm waiting for you. Once you get your teachings out, when your wellsprings will flood. So what does that mean? 
The wellsprings will flood means. Where will it flood? Outside. So we have over here the other words. Everybody will agree. I was walking in Jerusalem the other day. Two weeks ago I was in Israel. I was walking in Jerusalem. And on a cobblestone street or a old Jerusalem narrow alleyway, I come across. I came across some beautiful sights. First of all, in one place I hear little children. It was in the evening. It was dark. It was the most beautiful sound I've ever heard. They were all singing psalms together. It felt like the angels were surrounding that that building. It was so beautiful. Spartic children, and they were singing so beautifully the psalms. And everybody, it it, it was mesmerized at the beauty. And then you come across a building, Yeshiva Samukubalim. This is the Yeshiva of the of the Mikubalim of the of the uh, Kabbalists. So it's very fitting. In that, and if I would, I didn't go in, but I don't know if I'm a Kabbalist. <laughs> but it's Yeshiva, and it's appropriate. It's in a Jerusalem corner. It's in a holy place. Around the corner is this yeshiva. Over there is that yeshiva. Everything around it is kosher and holy and godly. So in that, so most yeshivas, they don't study the Kabbalah. But this is a special school where special people come who are very sublime and very holy. And they go to the mikvah and they immerse and they're in a, and they're, 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 you know, they're not people that are, you know, they're not materialistic at all. And these are the people that study. This is a fitting place for Kabbalah. Let's say, a, a, an appropriate environment. So Chassidism says, great. But that's not the point. The point is that a rabbi in Los Angeles in California should sit and should teach on YouTube without any restrictions of who is learning and who is coming onto the YouTube channel and reveal the deepest secrets of existence, the most esoteric teachings and it's flooding the universe. I thank God I'm one rabbi because I'm inspired by the Chabad notion which Mashiach himself said to the Baal Shem Tov, that's the work that needs to be done. Mashiach said the wellsprings of Hasidus need to get outside. But it doesn't say they should go outside with a tiny trickle. They should flood the outside. That means wherever it is, any person can be sitting wherever you are across the world and you might not be and we don't do any vetting anymore of deciding who can come into the yeshiva, who can come into the class. Everybody can join the class. Everybody can learn. Moshiach is waiting, which means God is waiting for the flooding of the world with the, deep, the deepest of teachings. It's exactly the point. The highest of the high. Do you realize that the ideas that we share in this class were not revealed for hundreds of years to people a million times holier than us and more refined than us? These teachings were not. They would go crazy by hearing this. This is like wild. And yet, where is it supposed to go? It's supposed to go everywhere, to every nook and cranny of the universe. Hopefully we get thousands and thousands and thousands of subscribers. I'm not just talking about mine. I'm just one channel. But there's many rabbis teaching Hasidism. And it needs to be taught. And if you know something, teach as well. Get it out there. Everywhere, everywhere, the world must be flooded 
with this enormous infinite light. That's the concept of Maynosecha. And when you teach it, you're not giving just a little taste of it. See, many people say, you know what? Okay, I will teach, but I'll give a little crumb because people can only handle a crumb. Bolshemtov said no. He didn't say the waters of the spring should reach the outside. He said the spring itself should be flooded outside. Imagine what does that mean? It means going to the very source of the water. The spring itself. Not, you know, a spring as water. And then there is some water that goes out into the river. And then eventually the waters of the river go out. No, no, no. You have to bring the spring everywhere. Bring the source everywhere. So how do you bring the source everywhere? Like, what do we do on Thursday night? I'm not just giving a little tidbits. I'm taking the very big, big red book that I hold on Thursday night. It's the spring itself. And it can be watched literally in every corner of the earth. Anybody can be watching and studying. And you speak English, you can learn. And then maybe you can have English translate translate, and have, I don't know, subtitles. And I don't know, I guess YouTube does it. You can you can study across the entire world. The 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 springs itself have to get it everywhere. Same concept. What does that do to the world? What that does to the world is that it makes that our material physical world should be able to experience. The loftiest, 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 mind-blowing revelations. And the two will be merged completely together. The Rebbe goes on to explore how this is also reflected in the miracle of Yutes Kislev, when their Alter Rebbe came out. But I think it's a little bit of an, even though we said the spring has to come out, but it's a little bit of overload for today. Because this is not a Thursday class. This is still a Monday class. Monday's class is still <laughs> a little bit condensed. But there's just a really interesting conclusion to it where he discusses how when the Alter Rebbe writes about the miracle that happened to him on the 19th of Kislev because he was incarcerated in a Russian prison and they released him, he, relied, he, he speaks in terms that the miracle that happened was a mind-blowing miracle. But it happened in a way that um, the miracle was done on the earth, in which what he, with the Rebbe, with the, with the Rebbe explains what it really means is that the most, what causes a mind blowing miracle, he says, let me give a quick example for it. He says there's three types of miracles. There was all this nature. Nature is a concealment of God, okay? Unless you study nature really well, you can see God in nature. And then there is divine revelation. Divine revelation comes from a higher name of Hashem called Havaya Yudke Vavke. Nature comes from the name of Elohim. Fine. But in Havaya, in the revelation of, 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 of God, of, the, of a higher power, of a more infinite light, which translates into a miracle, there's three levels of miracles, he says. One level of miracle is where the miracle is very camouflaged in the natural order, but yet you can detect that this is miraculous. 
The perfect example for that is the Hanukkah, the uh, Purim story. The, the Purim story, as we all know the story of Purim, is everybody can tell you it was a miracle. God delivered the Jewish people, but on the, but on the surface of it, it was just a, a sequence of incredible coincidences. But when you look at the whole picture, you realize that this can't be coincidence. The king got angry at his wife and he killed her because she insulted him. He was drunk. And then he takes the Jewess. All the contestants in the world, he picks a Jewish girl. He doesn't even know who she is. She's refusing to stay. Because if she would know she's Jewish, she might have not have taken her. And now he falls in love with her and he marries her. And then after that, Mordechai is, uh, saves the king's life. And, then, uh, and the whole situation, how it all comes together in perfect timing. So you can see that God is pulling the strings, but there is a veil of nature. So there is where the miracle is hidden. Then there is a miracle which is beyond nature, but it's couched in nature. Example for that, when the Jewish people came in with Joshua to Jericho, to Yerichai, how did they take down the city? The city had enormous walls. What did they do? They ran around the city seven times for seven days. And each time they blew shofar. On Shabbos, they went around seven times and they blew shofar on the seventh day and the walls came crumbling. So good. So how did they conquer the city? Miraculous. Not really. You know why? Because in the end, the people came and they all draw their swords and they and they and they and they and they and they, they conquered the city with a military might. So if it would be miraculous, then don't do anything. God will give it, God will decimate the city, it'll be yours. So you see a blend. It was a miracle. Without the miracle, their armies wouldn't have been able to do anything. But with the introduction of the miracle, God said, now I want you to fight. Or there was another war, when the Jews, it's still a biblical story, when the Jews fought against Midian, the Midianites. It says 22,000 Jews, I'm sorry, 12,000 Jews were sent out to battle. 1,000 per tribe against the entire Midianite army. They came back after the battle and they counted the people. They didn't lose one soldier. So what is that? Obviously miraculous. And it, it defies nature. Not like coincidences. It's, it's, it, there's no such a thing. When you have a formidable army that you're fighting, someone is going to die. No one. Everybody came back uninjured. But they still fought a war. So a blend of a miracle and a natural phenomenon. But then there is a third miracle where the miracle is just purely miracle without any camouflaging, without any veil at all. Where? When the armies of uh, Sancherif came to attack Jerusalem and Chizkiyahu, the king of, of Jerusalem, said, I said to God, I'm going to sleep. You take care of business. That's what he did. He went to sleep. No war, no nothing. God opened up the ears of the, of the Sancherif's hundreds of thousands of military men. They were exposed to angels singing and they died because it was too it was over it was overload to their to their abilities and they all perished thousands of soldiers died and others fled the city no one did anything they were sleeping and the, and the victory was theirs so that's a purely 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 above the world miracle completely when the Alter Rebbe, Rabshner Zalman Aliyadi discusses the miracle that happened to him on the 19th of Kislev he's indicating that the energy of that miracle was of this third level. 
He calls it Hifli Hashem. Hashem did wonders. Wonder represents the highest level of miracle. But then he says, Bekereva Aretz. He did it in the midst of the earth. What does that mean? The miracle didn't break and shatter and destroy nature. The miracle somehow finagled its way into nature. Without it, everybody saw it was like, and it, like it says, the Alter Rebbe says, all the ministers were astounded of how this Jewish rabbi, that they finally thought they nailed him, and they can take him down, like walked out of jail without anything. They themselves had to release him and free him. So they wondered, and he was vindicated, but they themselves can see how it was like astonishing the miracle that happened. So the Rebbe says that's because that's the that's the fusion of Hasidus. So the liberation of so the technical element of the miracle that happened also reflected the same idea that the highest of the high is kind of converging with the lowest of the low. Nature and super miracles are waltzing together and dancing together in absolute unison. That's the, that's the magnificence of the story. So now we lead us all back to the, to, the, to the questions we asked before. How can it be that Hasidism, Hasidism is revealed in the end of generations because we're the lowest? And then we're told because it's the light, it's the messianic infinite light. That's the, where can you find the messianic infinite light? In the darkest, lowest moments. Because the whole point over here is the fusion of the highest with the lowest. That's the point of Hasidism. So therefore Hasidic, the, re, the, the, the Hasidic um, um, in, um, 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 introduction into the world of the essence of the Torah bridges the two. It comes to it. It comes to the world in a time when the world is super dark, which means super low, in a condition that it is not ready and not a vessel for any of these lights. And yet, the lights come pouring in because that is the ultimate objective, and it takes us back to Jacob, which is the same story. Yaakov is, on the one hand, going back for tiny little jugs, small little insignificant plastic cups. And in those small, which means small little details, small little things, and in that smallest of things, what's revealed to him, Jacob is alone. He's touching the absolute singular revelation of God's oneness that's going to be revealed in the time of Mashiach. The essence of God is revealed, the plastic cup and the infinite light are both variations of God's truth. So both of them can stand side by side. Both of them can be unified. And that's where we stand in history right now. We have to start realizing there's nothing small in our lives. There's nothing tiny. It's just truth. Truth of the Eberster, truth of God, truth of his very being. And in the smallest of things, we can find the deepest secrets. 
and an act of, as I said, Shabbos over here, when you're putting on your socks in the morning and you're choosing if you're going to wear this kind of sock and that kind of sock, that can be the most godliest decision you've ever made. And real, take it, yeah, realize that's what it is. There's nothing that's not godly. Tune in to get a deeper understanding of why that's godly. That's where we are. May we merit the coming of Mashiach. May we merit already since we're flooding the world, the channels of the world on YouTube, Facebook. And please share, share. That's the whole point. You could teach yourself, teach yourself. If else, share the class with others because that's the point. We have to get the we have to get these the, 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 these truths out everywhere. That's the entire objective. So why wait? Why not do it today? May we see Mashiach now.